0: Hi, this is Paula Ellis and welcome to Book Circle Online. I'm here with Shaka Senghor and we're going to talk about this amazing memoir that he's written, uh, Right Am I Wrong? So stay tuned. This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online.
1: beautiful, right? Yeah, I love this song. Mm-hmm.
2: has a lot of personal meanings. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that.
2: Ah, thank you so much for having yeah, me. Yeah, welcome. Excited. Thank you.
0: Excited to have you here. <laughs> I'm
2: actually excited to be here. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I wanted to just tell you, I just wanted to start out and tell you how courageous I think you're willing to share this story over and over and over is. Um ah. I think I told you earlier that you know uh, a lot of times when we do something we don't necessarily uh, want to talk about it or tell people about mm-hmm. it. Sometimes we go and hide our head, bury our head in the sand. And for you to to tell this story over and over, um, something um, that is is uh, so difficult to have mm. to talk about all the time, I think it's is amazingly courageous for you to be able to do that. So thank you for willing to do that. And mm. and with that, um, I want to ask you, why mm. write the book, right? Why? why do that?
2: Yeah. Um, well, thank you for, for you know the great way of setting that question up. I think it's really important for people to understand that this is not an easy thing to do. Uh, writing a book just in general is a great undertaking for anybody uh, to really stay focused and get a story out, but this is very, very personal. And one of the things that inspired me to write my memoir is the work that I was doing in the community that I came from after I returned home from prison. And the things that I just saw being said about young black men and young black women who were growing up in tough circumstances, Mm -hmm. um, I really felt were unfair. You know, I mean, we deal with some very difficult Circumstances in a lot of the communities throughout the country, you know, from Detroit. Detroit has a tough history of gun mm-hmm. violence and you know murder rates, and you know Chicago is our next-door neighbor, and we know the story there. But I feel like there's a story behind the story, mm-hmm. and that that story is how do so many of our young men and women coming from these environments end up in this cycle of violence and gun violence and prison and juveniles and and felonies and things like that that typically limits a person's long-term growth in terms of just being a part of society. And so I really wanted to tell that story. Like, what is the story behind, you know, the story? Because what happens in a lot of instances is there will be an an act of violence committed, Mm -hmm. and you'll see that splashed across the news, you know, young person shoot such and such the end Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
2: no beginning no backstory uh, no context and so what it has done is it has basically stereotyped you know young men and women from these communities as being incorrigible violent prone uh, predators and that's just not the reality it's a systematic thing but it's also a very personal uh, traumatic experience and I really wanted people to be able to see that
0: so let's start with your story behind the story. Tell yeah. us tell us about James White.
2: Yeah, so I, I grew up, you know, in in a in a household that looks like the model for working class, middle class, black America. Uh my father was in the military and the air force, uh, and he also worked for the state and my mother was primarily a homemaker. Uh and tragically and unfortunately, you know, my mother was abusive. And, you know, growing up you don't really I didn't understand that hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. So I had no context to draw from. I didn't know my mother's story. I didn't know her backstory. I didn't know the trauma she experienced from the time she was a child into early adulthood when she began having children. And so not having that context of understanding, all I knew was that the woman that's supposed to be loved me is the woman that's hurting me. And so I decided to run away. And and when when I made that decision, You know, I was a naive kid, you know, just thinking that somebody would just take me in and and say, okay, this kid is smart, honor roll, scholarship student. All he just needs is some love and attention and Mm -hmm. affection, and he'll be all right. And unfortunately, it just doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, across this country, there are countless teenagers who are hanging out at gas stations and liquor stores. They're basically transient homeless. And people prey on that. They prey mm-hmm. on their vulnerability. They prey on you not having somewhere to sleep and you not having a means to provide for yourself. And so that was how I got seduced into the drug trade. And, 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 you know, when I entered that culture, this was the beginning of crack cocaine, um, emerging in inner cities. And so I was completely clueless as to how devastating of an impact that the drug would have on society as a whole. Right. Um, in general, and then uh, what it would do to me, you know, specifically, and within the first six months, I experienced, you know, all the horror that comes with that culture.
0: Do you remember when? Because I, as I was reading the book, um, there's a paragraph in here and I marked it to share. Um, You say, as I stood there in cuffs, my thoughts wandered back to my childhood. I thought about the first time my mother asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. I told her that I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to help people get better, to mend their broken bones. I wanted to be the kind of doctor who gave children balloons and lollipops any time they had got shot. So here you are now. You've been arrested, Mm -hmm. right? And you're in these handcuffs, and you have this, this moment. And do you... Do you remember what it was you talk about the abusive the abuse that was going on um in your home, but what was the trigger when you lost that innocence as a child
2: I think the the real innocence was lost um when I was robbed uh like I got robbed at gunpoint and this was early into me selling drugs and what happened was I basically got lured out of the house where I was selling the drugs at. And one of the guys, he was a friend of mine's uncle, um, but he was dealing with drug addiction. And again, I was naive. I didn't know the desperation that drug addiction, you know, bred in people. people yeah. you know. And so they lured me out of the house and, you know, under the guise of, you know, taking care of me and making sure I got transportation to the next place I was going. And then they robbed me at gunpoint. And I just remember at, at, at one point, which I talk about in the book, um, the gun being held to my head and just feeling the desperation and smelling the desperation. You know, one of the guys, he was a, he was a uh, I think of what they call polyaddicted, where he was addicted to crack cocaine as well as heroin, mm. uh, which is just an extreme combination of, you know, drugs. And so I just remember looking down these basement steps and thinking to myself that, he's going to shoot me in the head and kick me down the stairs and nobody will find me for a couple of days. And I believe that the innocence, you know, relative to hope as a child, you know, was shattered at that point. Um, There was an incident that I talk about in the book when I was younger that I think shattered my perspective of, you know, what it means to be a child that's loved and taken care of. But in terms of just that break through in the streets. Um, it was that moment that I got right So as
0: you're out there and you're mentoring now, mm-hmm. um, other young men who are dealing with some of these same challenges, how do you, how do you connect with them knowing that that innocence has been lost, right? There's a, there's a fire that they don't even want you to know that's gone, probably right. They're trying to protect themselves and show you this tougher demeanor. How do you how do you how do you connect with them and encourage them when they're in that place? I mean, you know what that felt like. How do you reach them? Yeah,
2: yeah I mean, it, it's it's a very unique skill set to have, you know, because it's born out of tragedy.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But it's a relatability, you know. And once they understand that you come from where they come from, that you've experienced the things that they have saw they bear witness to or that they have possibly experienced themselves, there's a connectedness there, you know, and for me, I have a, I have a approach that, you know, as a mentor and I have a different type of, I don't have like a mentoring program at this point because I'm doing a whole bunch of other stuff, but I mentor several young men and women uh, and, and more informal where they text me, they call me okay. and I just listen, you know, mm-hmm. I think that there's art to listening to young people. Um, and respecting their humanity and respecting their experience and not dismissing them and saying, hey, it'll be okay. Because sometimes it won't be okay. Right. And if it's not okay, then what is your plan A through Z to figure out how to make things, you know, and, and to where you can actually deal with them when they're not okay? Mm-hmm. And I think all too often we just dismiss things up under the guise that it'll be okay. And for some of these kids, it won't be okay. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that they can't survive and they can't overcome and that they can't thrive. Once they can recognize that, you know what, my mother may be addicted to drugs for the rest of my life. However, there are things that I can do to ensure that I don't become victim to that. Okay. And so in that instance, that's not okay. You know, it's not okay because you're up as a child. You're wondering if your mother's going to make it home at night, you know. Um, but you have to figure out how do you make peace with that and then move forward in life. Um and so for me it's listening, you know the artist listening, the artist being vulnerable and being open and and really you know when I wrote this book, I when I decided to write it, I was hesitant for a couple of reasons. Uh one is there were things that I was going to share that I had never shared publicly. Mm-hmm. And you know once you put something out, you can't retract it. It's out there in the universe, you know. And the the determining factor for me was trust amongst the young men and women that I engage with and that if I'm expecting them to step up to the plate and be authentic and be honest and transparent, then I had to be a model for what that looks like. And I had to be an example for them. And so, you know, this isn't just my story. This is our story. You know, this is the collective story of thousands of young men and women uh, who have, you know, lost their lives in the streets, who have lost their lives to prison, who have been traumatized through gun violence you know, this is when you're reading this, it's not just Shaka, You know, this is this is the young brothers and sisters that you walk past every day. Mm-hmm. You know, our mm-hmm. stories are intertwined. And so I knew that I had to tell the story.
0: So tell me what you were thinking. I was reading about the sentencing and, and tell me tell me what goes through your mind when you hear that you could spend the next 40 years in prison.
2: When I got sentenced I, I just knew that my life was over. I mean I was nineteen years old, you know, and at nineteen years old you can't You were a baby. Yeah, you can't even think two two weeks. Right, down the line, right. Like, excuse me, let alone um, decades down the line. Right. And the only guaranteed part of my sentence was the forty years. Uh so I was sentenced to seventeen to forty years, with the forty years being guaranteed. Um tell me and, what that
0: means being guaranteed.
3: So
2: that means that they had they didn't have to let me out until forty years
3: okay.
2: uh however, I could earn a parole after seventeen, 17. years okay. um and oftentimes people end up doing their maximum sentence, mm-hmm. you know just because we have a we have a system that's so broken, and for me, when I got sentenced to that time, you know seventeen years is two decades, you know, and I couldn't see a life, I couldn't see a future beyond the immediate moment I was in. And so I just was went to prison with this anger, this bitterness, this resentment, this bitterness, this resentment, and I found myself getting in more and more trouble. Mm-hmm.
0: I saw, and I, I saw, um, or as I was reading, you had um, seven years in solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, I was like, and I think at one point the longest stint was four years. Is that like, right? Four
2: and a half years.
0: That, that's it's like torture when you think mm-hmm. about twenty three hours a day you are locked up with one hour. Um, And how does that tell me what you were doing what was James doing at that point in time that was landing him in solitary confinement like that
2: well I broke almost every rule that they had in prison (laughs) Um, which isn't uncommon you know you're you're young and you're angry and you're frustrated and then you're dealing with this very racially charged environment very antagonistic Uh, you're dealing with Officers who have no experience with, you know, inner city kids outside of the prison setting. Mm. So there's judgments. You come in, you know, the racial dynamic is unbelievable. You know, uh, the majority of the prison population where I was at was African-American or Latino. Uh, Majority of the officers were white. And so there was this immediate racial antagonism there. Um, Some of it was we're from the inner city, officers from rural areas, And so, you know, judgment's on both halves, you know. And so I found myself just breaking most of the rules that didn't make sense to me. It didn't make sense. I didn't typically follow along with it. And then there were other days where I just woke up and just didn't care. You know, I didn't care whether I made it out of prison. I didn't care what the consequences were of my actions. And so I found myself getting in more and more trouble. Uh, The four-and-a-half-year stint that I served was different, though, Um
0: was that at the beginning of the seven
2: years or towards the
0: end of that the seven? The so that that was, was the end. That was the end. The last okay. time I
2: was in solitary confinement, I was in solitary for four and a half years straight. And at this point during my incarceration, I was in a very different space. I was a, I was a leader in the environment. Uh, I was well-respected amongst you know my peers. And, and, um, and largely because I was an organizer inside. I was an activist. Um, and so because of that, that comes with a target. You have a target on your back when you're, like, fighting against uh, policies that don't make sense or fighting against things that you know to be uh, wrong in the system and organizing, you know, the men around issues that we cared about and that mattered to us, and typically when you're that type of person who stands up for yourself and you know the laws and you know the policies, uh, officers don't typically like that, and so there was an incident that happened prior to The incident that led to me being in solitary with me and this officer, we had gotten into it about his attempting to deny me access to a recreation yard. Mm -hmm. But according to the policy, I knew I was right. And so when I cited the policy and quoted it and made sure that I knew what I was talking about, that rubbed him the wrong way. And literally within a few days, we got into another altercation, and he crossed the line by pushing me. Uh, And then I punched him and beat him up really bad. And so they sentenced me to an additional two years in prison and four and a half years in solitary confinement.
0: Wow. Mm -hmm. So now you're in. So when you went in for that last four and a half years, you know, Mm -hmm. at that time, it's four and a half years in solitary confinement. Or do they just keep adding on and you think you're going to get out? How does that work?
2: Well, the thing part of the torturous part of solitary confinement is that they don't tell you when you get out. It's indeterminate. And so it's very arbitrary. It's up to the warden to start the process again. You release then that goes to higher ups at, um in the system. So it's a it's a step by step process. It's it's so arbitrary. It absolutely you know it has no. And part well, part of it is the the them not informing you. Part of that is the control part. You know because you're very dependent on them to decide when, and it keeps you guessing. It can get you, you know, very frustrated. It's a mental and game. And that's a, yeah, it's yeah. Very, yeah. yeah, and it basically breaks people down.
1: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm.
2: Uh, when I went in, though, the warden told me that I probably would never get out of prison, let alone solitary confinement. So, you know, initially I was like, oh, "That's let's just talk. And then I realized that I had a neighbor across the from me who had been in, at that time, um... I was that was I went in in two. Well, I met him in two thousand, so I had a year in, and he was on his fourteenth year in solitary. Um, and then there was another neighbor who was on his tenth year, and another who had did like twenty years in solitary. And so, when the warden said that I probably would never get out, uh, I began to understand why. We actually had a role that we call long term solitary role because all of us had just wow. been told we would be there forever. So
0: what's going on in your head day by day when you think you're getting out you're not getting out you think you're getting out how do you mentally keep focus keep your strength around you you started is this part of when you start the writing and the reading or were you doing that prior to
2: well it was for me um i was i was really fortunate to be literate and so i had read books about you know, why prisons themselves had been designed and what the intentions was behind designing maximum security and super maximum security. That's
0: interesting. And
2: solitary. Mm. And there's this one book I read called Cages of Steel, Mm -hmm. and it basically explained what the intentional purposes of solitary was designed to do and what would happen to a person the longer you kept them in there. And so it started breaking down, like, all of the symptoms. You know, if you keep a person who is a leader and you surround him with people who have mental illness at some point he'll start questioning whether um he's the one who isn't sane because he's not reacting to the environment the same way everybody else around him is act- reacting to the environment okay. um cut off cutting off communication mm-hmm. making it harder for you know the person to communicate it makes you more reliant on the officers and in turn, they attend to try to utilize that to manipulate uh, information out of you. So it's just all these different things that I knew going in. And so whenever I would feel myself questioning, you know, can I take one more day of this? You know, I would be reminded of the intentions behind solitary to break a person down. And I just was refused to break. You know, I refused to become another broken soul. And I saw so much brokenness in that environment. is one of the reasons that I'm such an advocate for the abolition of solitary confinement as we know it today uh, because the level of abuse for those suffering from mental illness is just unconscionable. You know, mm-hmm. like, you know, we live in what's supposed to be one of the most civilized countries in the world. Right. Yet we allow the torture of men and women who have mental illness, like diagnosed mental illness. And they probably make up 80% of who's in solitary confinement at any given time. And the level of desperation that I witnessed was just, you know, and a lot of stuff I, I couldn't even put in a book because I'm like, this is just, it's so raw. Mm. It's so barbaric that, you know, I don't I don't want to traumatize people. I want to mm. enlighten people. I don't want to, like, traumatize you. Mm-hmm. But it's a high level of trauma happening in solitary confinement all throughout the country right now.
0: But I think, <clears throat> I mean, I think what you share in your book is raw. And I think it has to be if you're going to continue to push for change, right? right I mean, people need to really see yeah. what's happening inside there. And I think you do a great job um, in talking about that in the book. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard for us to process because um, we don't know anything about the prison system. Yeah. It's almost hidden. Um, and, um that we even privatize our prison system is, mm-hmm. that's a whole nother it's thing. It's big business. That's mind boggling. It's yeah. big business. It's yeah. big business. A lot of dollars at risk. Um, when you're talk, talk about your mentors, the people that, um, cause there were several people that really mm. kind of encouraged you, um, helped you refocus um inside the prison system in um, inmates of yours. And I think when we think of mentor, when we hear the word mentor, most people are not going to think there's a mentor that can have that kind of influence, positive influence on you inside the system, right? Yeah. Um, because, we've, because we throw away people in the prison system. And we mm-hmm. think once you go in, you know, we're done with you. There's nothing else that we could do with you. But that's not true. And you were heavily influenced um, in a very positive way. So talk about some of the mentors and what they meant to you
2: yes it's interesting now um because i get asked a lot about mentoring just because i'm such an advocate of of you know being a voice and being a listener for young people uh and sometimes peers and elders as well and i mean I'm, I'm i have an incredible network out here of amazing people who are really well accomplished and i learn a great deal from them every day just just the way that they move through life the life wisdom that they have you know the way that they've helped me navigate through life um they're just amazing incredible people you know one of my mentors is is you know he's uh the director at MIT media lab brilliant brilliant guy uh Joy Edo who I just learned so much from you know since I've been on this side of the wall and so I had these really high level you know mentor type friends but there's nothing like the men who contributed to my growth in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, the, these men and I'm and I'm very intentional about not calling the men and women incarcerated inmates or offenders or felons or whatever other politically correct name people come up with. Uh, because I wanna be very intentional about people acknowledging that these are human beings mm-hmm. who at some point in their lives made poor decisions uh and in some instances they haven't made they've just been accused of making poor decisions mm. that That's landed good point. them in prison. Right. But they're you know, their fathers, their brothers, their uncles and, mm-hmm. you know, aunts and mothers and, and so I just try to acknowledge their humanity because they poured so much into me. And it wasn't it wasn't in this, you know, cute, neat, agreed upon way. It mm-hmm. was kinda like they recognized qualities that I had in terms of just the influence amongst the young guys. But I was getting in a bunch of trouble, you know. And they would come to me and just be like, you know, one day you're gonna get out, you know, one day you're gonna get out, and you can take those leadership skills and utilize them for the greater good. And I would be going on, I don't, I don't want to hear that. I'm, I'm dying in here, you know. And they would be very insistent that you know I wasn't going to die in prison, and that one day I would be able to utilize my, you know, natural abilities to you know have some meaningful impact. And I, I didn't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want to hear it. And what ended up happening is they discovered my love for literature.
0: Can I ask, can I interrupt and ask, Do you did you not want to hear it because you didn't believe in yourself? Did you not want to hear it because you didn't think it was possible? You weren't ready to hear it? What was that? What was that rejection? Was that protection? Were you protecting yourself? What was that? It was,
2: it was a combination of things. Uh, growing up with a father... For one, it was just hard for me to take instructions from another man when I grew up with a father uh, that I didn't always listen to.
3: Okay.
2: Um, but the other part of it was just hopelessness. You know, mm-hmm. not feeling like there was another side. You know, I was immersed in an environment where it was chaotic, it was brutal, it was you know opportunistic. You know, I didn't see any positive lights. I hadn't seen anybody who got out and did mm-hmm. something meaningful. I saw guys get out and come back. I saw guys get out and get killed. But I didn't see an example of what was possible. You know, only example we had at the time was the autobiography of Malcolm X. You know, and so Malcolm died before I was born. So Mm -hmm. that wasn't as tangible as, like, somebody actually getting out and and walking the path. So, you know, it was just resistance to the idea based on the circumstances that I was in. You know, and being young and just... Being in a moment and, and realizing that you know, this is what I have to deal with right now. I can't think about what's happening outside; otherwise, I go crazy. Mm. You know, and mm-hmm. so I didn't want to hear it. But but what they did is they saw that I had this love for reading. Um, and one of the one of the guys he introduced me to to literature through little books that he had wrote. You know, and I mean, I had read books before. I was you know a smart kid or whatever, um, but I just read whatever. Was available to me It wasn't like I was intentional,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and so he saw you know he he was sharing these books that he was writing. It was just like little short stories about his community and the neighborhood he grew up in. It was about the streets and drugs, and and then he introduced me to Donald Gawans. Uh and Donald Goins is probably the most famous you know author in prison culture. Like I don't care what prison you've been in, you've encountered. Donald Goins as much as you've encountered the Bible. Um, and so once I began to read Donald's work, and, and Donald's an a, a amazing storyteller, like a brilliant storyteller. like He brings you like so close to the street experience of the 60s and 70s uh, that it just engaged you in, in a way that, that nothing else. It engaged me in a way that nothing else had before. And so I ended up reading his whole collection, which was probably about thirteen or fourteen books. And what happened was we had to go into a special room to get these books, mm-hmm. because sometimes they guys would check them out and wouldn't bring them back. And so they made you fill out uh, a disbursement form, which basically your guarantee that you would bring the book back, or they would charge your account for the cost of the book, and you would get a misconduct. So in this one room. They basically had all of the brilliant black writers, and so this is where I discovered the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. This is where I discovered, you know, J. A. Rogers and and you know uh, Chancellor Williams and Ivan Van Serteman and all these great historians. And so I began to devour those books, and and, and they started paying attention to that. They started selecting books for me and being like, well, "Read this," or "What do you think about this?" And then we would start having these debates and. You know, I was all, I was young. I was up for the challenge, and you know, and they and they were always questioning whether I was actually reading the books because I was a very fast reader. Mm-hmm. And so they'd be like, "Well, what happened in this chapter? What was this talking <laughs> about? What was this idea?" And they would turn into like these really intense debates, and and that was their way in. You know, and so they started just giving me information that, and it was never like, so they were never like the instructional kind of mentors. It was just like we're going to provide you with information. Mm-hmm. And then we'll debate and we'll talk about it. And, and I ended up building real relationships with these men that carried on from prison to prison. And so when I would arrive at a prison, there was usually another elder there, you know, who somebody had told him, you know, one of my guys was gone, you know, and then we'd end up just walking and talking and, and building. And, um, and that's that's why I just I pay so much homage to them. You know, mm-hmm. these men are currently dying in prison. Um, and...
0: Are you allowed to be in contact with them now?
2: Yes, I I, I write through... um, They have an app that you can actually write, you know, send send letters to. I try to make sure I send them books whenever possible. Um, You know, sometimes we'll send in just... Because I have, like, my core group of, like, friends. Like, these are guys I grew up with Mm -hmm. who are, like, my brothers. It's, like, ten of them guys that I'm, (laughs) I'm consistent with. They're the ones I'm most consistent with. And then I have... Probably 20 or 30 other men that I write um, periodically. But I'll send in pictures just kind of like, hey, here's what's happening. Here's the update. I'll send in articles. Uh, We used to do a newsletter, you know, to just kind of like a – we tried to do quarterly, but it was just too much. But we would try to do that in a sense of like 100 different guys just to make sure they're seeing. Because to me, it's important for them to see a model Mm
3: -hmm, that you
2: can actually do it if you put the work in, if you – like trust and believe in yourself enough to like know that you don't want to go back to prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do what I can to just stay. Like you said, and, and
0: just knowing that there's a way.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Definitely.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um what is it like when you're in solitary confinement and we'll talk about the letter that your son sent, but what is it like when you don't get mail?
2: Um, it's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. You know, it's heartbreaking in prison period when you don't get letters or cards or you know just photos or something to say that somebody's thinking of you you know so it's a, it's, a, it's you know here's the, the struggles that I have sometimes when I listen to people's interpretation of what happens in prison so some people say well you shouldn't have messed up or you shouldn't have did this etc but I I believe that you get out of people what you put into them mm-hmm. If you want people to return to society healthy and whole, you have to support them
3: mm-hmm.
2: emotionally. Yeah. You know, and then the other part is just we have fickle minded people, you know, we have we have family members who they keep it real when you out here and you're risking your life, you know, and, and you're providing for their lives, mm-hmm. but then you get locked up, all that goes away. Mm-hmm. You know, we have fair weather friends, yes. you know, when everything is all good, everybody's there to support you. Uh, but when it goes bad and you really need somebody there, you know, and people don't show up, like, it hurts. Yeah. And, you know, it hurts to know that, you know, you've given so much of yourself to, you know, the, whether it's the streets or, you know, just your loyalty to family or whatever the case may be. And then people don't show up when you need them. And so one, that's one of the things that I definitely utilize when I'm working with young men and women because a lot of people have this false sense of allegiance. Mm. And they think that, well, my friends will never turn their back on me. They would never let me down. Mm. And I can guarantee you that pretty much 98% of the people in your lives will leave you once you go to prison. Mm-hmm. Literally everybody. Wow. Um, you know, you and, and, and when you go in the visiting rooms, it's usually mothers, fathers, a girlfriend, somebody may you know that may stick in, but for the most part, people abandon you. And, and, and I don't think that it, people have malicious intent. It's just out of sight, out of mind, you know, and it happens. And, and so... You know, when you're in there, like letters mean everything, Mm -hmm. you know, just just, uh, you know, pictures and photos. And and it's not even like just to show love, but it's also to inform like, you know, it it was information that you need. You know, so I send my guys information that's relevant to what their circumstances are, especially those coming home.
0: Mm, That's interesting. That's a good point.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I came home to a different world. Yeah. You know, I, was, I was clueless. And I mean, I was fortunate that I, I had people around me, uh, my ex-fiancee, um, she provided me with all type of information, all type of content just to kind of prepare me for life after. And I had, I mean, she prepared me for a lot. And then I came here and it still wasn't it's enough still to not make enough, that, right. that leap, you know, but something is better Because things have than changed nothing. so
0: much. Yeah. And you've got to try to absorb it. All at one time, right? That's in front of you while you're still wrestling with who am I in this society that puts up roadblocks for me every possible way it can. Um, Talk about the letter, the letter that your son sent you that started you down a real path of self-awareness and changing and self-reflection, I
2: think. Well, the letter I received from my son is, is what I'm now calling uh, the third in this trilogy of little miracles um, that led to my transformation. So the first was actually those mentors that we talked about earlier. I didn't recognize them for the miracles that they were until I got out. Mm. And I was able to look back and really reflect on
0: how much they had deposited, how much in they you. Had
2: deposited and how many of my men along my journey. And what had happened inside of me that allowed me to be receptive to their wisdom, um, and that's miraculous because I was so hard and I was so hell bent on just like not listening to anybody and doing it my way. Um, but, but they saw a light. But they saw they a still light. light yeah. yeah, they saw a light, yeah. uh, even when I didn't see it myself. Mm-hmm. And then a the second was a letter that I got from the woman who you know, told me that she raised the man whose life I was responsible for taking.
0: This was uh, David's. Godmother.
2: Godmother. Yeah. Um and so she, you know, that was this that was the second miracle. Um and what that did is it awakened me to the possibility of forgiveness and love in a different way. But the, the the third miracle, which I I believe is the most important, was a letter I got from my son, my oldest son. I have two sons now. Um but that letter he wrote after his mother told him I was in prison. Excuse me. Um, And it was something about hearing those words from my child that shattered all the prison toughness, all the street toughness, and made me really recognize that I had a responsibility because I owe him a father. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, just share that with
0: us. The letter.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, So in in a letter. You know, he said, dear dad, my mom told me why you were in prison for murder. Uh, dad, don't kill again. Jesus, watch what you do. Pray to him, you know. And Did you pray? You know what? I did. I meditated. Um, did and you believe in Jesus? I didn't. Uh, I'm not a religious person. I'm very spiritual, though. I believe in the principles and the morals and the values uh, that's attributed to Jesus. And, you know, but I'm... I studied theology while I was in prison. I just concluded that religion wasn't for me, but Mm -hmm. spirituality is something I feel deeply about. Okay. And I think that there are universal themes in all of the scriptures, you know, whether it's the Quran, whether it's the Bible, the Dhammapada, uh, the, the, um, Tao Te Ching, whatever spiritual books people, you know, uh, get their nourishment from, and I've read all of them, I've studied all of them, and i just concluded I'm not, you know, a religious really person, but spiritually, the, the moral fibers that run throughout the course of these, you know, great doctrines are things that I, you know, try to apply to my day-to-day life, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, I have a very unique spiritual philosophy that's, you know, a reflection of the way that i live my life you know i think that the greatest scripture is the interaction between human beings in a real way uh in our interaction with nature and the earth when you look outside and you recognize there's no limit to the sky Mm -hmm. uh i don't think there's no greater testament to you know our spiritual connectedness and so um to answer the question i wasn't in a space where religion uh was a transformative you know thing about my life and it's and it's kind of interesting now because that's what most people expected to be is that I had this come to Jesus moment and it just wasn't like that you know uh but I, even though I wasn't religious just the power of those words coming from my son
0: at the and at that time he, he was was about 10 years 10, old right?
2: you know that was just mind blowing you know and it made me realize that I needed to do something different with my life that's the
0: point. The power, as I listened to you say the words, the power of the innocence and what he was writing. Yeah. Children have a way of expressing themselves in such a raw, innocent way that makes you step back and go, wow. Mm -hmm. And to know that he wrote you in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, And that he was concerned about Jesus seeing what you've done. I thought Mm -hmm. that was really... Very
2: powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's profound, you know, yeah. when, you, when you think about just the wisdom of children. One of, My father told me something recently in, a, in probably like the last two years. Uh, we were just having a discussion about fatherhood, and he said that we don't teach our children anything. They're here to teach us. Mm. And when I thought about that, you know, it's like, no, we actually do teach. And I was like, no, he's right. Because even in the process of of imparting wisdom and knowledge or discipline to your children, there's a learning curve that you go through as a parent. Yes. Um, Because it's so much mirrored back to you and so much that's (laughs) reflected back through their behaviors. And and, um, so, you know, just getting that letter was just a a, a, it, it, it was the last thing needed for me to take that leap to the other side. And it, it wasn't pretty though. That's the you know the thing about this book, uh, and, and what I really wanted to get across to people, is that the process is not pretty.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, it takes work. You know, it takes hard work. It takes intention. Um, it's not pretty on this side. You know, mm-hmm. it's been a, it's, I've been out for seven years, and there are things that I struggle with today. You know, and I've been home for seven years, and there are things that are triggers that are, you know hurtful and things that there are moments when I feel rejected. I'm very successful. Uh, but I still run up against these rejections based on my past. I still run up against these judgments based on my past. There are certain freedoms and liberties that I will never have right. based on my past. Right. And I deal with that daily, you know, and so it's not a it wasn't a pretty process. It wasn't just this complete, okay, you know, this happened, so now you have to be a good guy. Uh it was work. You know, it's a lot of work. So know. how do
0: you get up? How do you get up and do that every day? How do you do that process every day? Some days. <laughs> I think I read where yeah. you were asked to speak at the White House and then you got there and they wouldn't let you in.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: um, yeah that or that
0: it. you were trying to, I think I read uh, something that you were trying to go to Canada to. Yeah. Do a uh, TED Talk. Yeah. But yeah. you couldn't get in and you actually did it out of New, New York. York.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, how do you deal with that? That's, that's, that's. That's reliving it. I mean, you that's why I talked about the courage at the very beginning. Yeah. Because there were a lot there would be a lot of people who would say there's no way, I'm just gonna put this I'm out, I wanna put this behind me and I'm gonna move yeah. on. But you've chosen to write this book to be out here to to be to use this as a platform for change yeah. and you're talking about it. So you're having to relive a lot of these things Over and over and over and over and over. How do you do it day in and day out?
2: Well, the the thing that keeps me going is knowing the purpose and that there's a purpose that's bigger than my personal narrative and bigger than my personal pain. Mm -hmm. And and the reality is that, you know, there are millions of men and women right now in this country with felonies that are being discriminated against, permanently discriminated against, uh, even though they've served their time, they've done their time they paid their restitution, and yet they still suffer. There are thousands who just want to do the right thing, who want to just get out, get a job, raise a family, and we don't give them the dignity of that second chance. And so for me, um, I can't in good conscience know how to fix things and not utilize my voice in a way that can help us fix it. Um, and, and, you know, People just don't think about how dehumanizing it is to just want to work. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. want to work. Yeah. You know, just want to work. Just want to work. You know, uh, how dehumanized it is when you go and try to get an apartment and they tell you you can't because you have a felony. Mm.
1: You
2: know, even though you've served your time. So the sentence doesn't end with you walking out of prison. And I mean, there are people who have been out for 10 years, for 20 years, and they run into these things that we just take for granted. Mm-hmm. You know, like I travel, I travel a lot for living. I can't get TSA because I have a felony that's 25 years old. Mm. Actually, it'll be 26 years. And I mean, in and, and most people's they probably think, like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. You can go through the regular line. Until you're traveling multiple times a week, in and out of
0: the time,
1: you
2: know the the time consumption. Um,
0: Are you familiar with um, T.D. Jakes, Bishop T.D. Jakes? I, I am. I was listening to a sermon of his a couple a uh, couple of weeks ago, and he he was talking about forgiveness. And one of the things he said is, "God forgives; it's man who will never let you forget." Yeah, and that's what you're experiencing. Yeah. You have. You um, have served your sentence, you've been released, but yet every day there's a reminder, a roadblock that man deliberately puts in the way mm-hmm. that stops you from being able to move forward. And not everybody who's released has the strength that you have, you know, because they've already been in a system that's been beating them down. Mm-hmm. They've, they've committed this crime, they've paid their sentence, they've paid their debt, and they have to deal with that, but now we're going to make them pay all over again. Mm-hmm. And then we under we don't understand the frustration of what they experience.
2: Yeah, and I mean I guess it's the hypocrisy of the of the world that we live in. It's like on one hand you're saying get out and move on with your life and become a taxpaying citizen, but then there's fifty thousand roadblocks in the way to prevent you from doing that. And then we act shocked when people go back to what they knew. Right. Um, and that and that's the that's the that's the difficult part, you know, is is you know, when I get you know, men coming home who I knew in prison, they're like, you know, I'm trying to do this, I'm trying to do that. And I'm trying to point them in these different directions. And then they get hit with this reality that people are not forgiving. Um, and they're basically crying on the phone like, man, I don't want to go back to selling drugs. I don't want to go back to the streets.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But I got to take care of my family. So what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And this is problematic throughout the country. You know it's not that they don't want to work if you if you've been in prison where you've worked for seventeen cent an hour, mm-hmm. you know you'll work out here in society you know if somebody just give you an opportunity, mm-hmm. and the things we just don't want to give people opportunity and and those of us who have seceded, most of us just have entrepreneurial spirits like I've done a lot of work with different organizations I've taught at the University of Michigan. I've worked with a national organization that, you know, is about black male empowerment and, and community building. Um, I currently work with Dream Corps, with Van Jones and, and Dreamcore, And in every one of those instances, I basically had to create the job opportunity. Like it wasn't just a traditional, you know, we're going to hire you. Um with the exception of the other black male engagement, like, they hired me based on me, you know, applying for the job. Uh, but at that point when they did, I had won an award for my work as a mentor with that organization. And they saw the value mm-hmm. that I brought to the table. Um, but even then, it was it was a consulting job.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's not real employment. It's not health care benefits. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a real job. But I'm secure. Mm-hmm. So I haven't had job security in seven years that I've been out. Right. Um but I'm an entrepreneur, so I've been able to, you know, survive. Mm-hmm. So, so
0: you've you've been out. You've had this amazing journey where you've decided to share this with everyone. Tell me what it's like. What, what would you say to to David's kids today? How would you, if you could talk to them today? What would you say to them?
2: Um, you know, that's a that's a that's a tough one. Um. But what I, w- what I would say is that, you know, his life isn't in vain. Uh, and what happened that night is a tragedy that I always wished that there was a way that I could undo. And despite the reality that I can't undo it, if you pay attention to what I actually do now, uh, you'll understand that it wasn't in vain. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, you know, all of our lives have purpose even when they don't seem to make sense to us. Um, whatever we go through in life has a deeper purpose if we're willing to look at it as such. You know, uh what I what I will say to other young men and and women who are growing up in these communities where gun violence is at extremely high levels, is that the burden of living with the fact that you've taken somebody's life every day Is't something you want to wake up to yeah. um you know it's a tremendous burden, it's something that never goes away mm-hmm. you know you can take most crimes um committed you know armed robbery, car theft, you know jury theft, whatever you want to call it, like those things are replaceable. you can't restore a human life once you've taken it right. and you know so the work that I do it's really about multiple things, you know, one is prevention. You know, I believe that anybody who reads Right My Wrongs will come away with the tools to first of all recognize what's happening in the lives of young men and women and then figure out what's necessary to you know, ensure that they don't end up on this path. Um and I mean I get letters all the time from parents just like, you know, my son read this, my daughter read this and it completely shattered, you know, all of the things that they, they were going through and now they're on a different path. Uh, the other thing was to really highlight what was happening in our, you know, criminal justice system that has recidivism rates at 70 percent throughout the uh, country. Um, so I just really wanted to, to, to tackle those tough issues, but in a very human way.
0: Mm-hmm. How do you think you'll have this conversation? You have a young son now. How do you think you'll have this conversation with him when he's older? Um, About what you've been through, how do you share that with him?
2: You know, he, my my young son uh, Sekou, he's is very precocious. He's child. brilliant. He's <laughs> going to be brilliant. I've, I've already you. met him. He's yeah. like amazing at five. Um, but he he's such an integral part of everything that I do. You know, he he we we haven't shielded him from our past. Um, we haven't had to, you know, lay it out in any. Great detail. I mean he's five years old right. but he's grown up alongside this experience. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the biggest thing I feel like as a father, my responsibility is to protect him from other people's ignorance and selfishness and you know, people will say, you know, well your daddy was in prison or your daddy was this or your daddy was that and so my responsibility as a father is to show up in his life in a way to where nobody can tell him anything about me that he doesn't already know. Yes. Um, and that yeah. he can be confident that his father is the man that will... That he
0: knows you, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's good. So, that's good. Um, and how's your son? How is your, um, your older son? Uh,
2: that's a very difficult relationship. You know, it's one of the collateral consequences of spending two decades in prison is that you can't repair um, those broken relationships in a short amount of time you know Um, I I personally believe that my oldest son is emotionally traumatized from the experience of me being absent from his life and that that has played out in his life as as it currently exists and you know when I came home I was hopelessly optimistic that we would just had this great reunion and, and, you know, right off into the sunset as you know, father and son. Uh, and unfortunately it didn't work like that. You know, he has his own things that he's dealing with and, you know, I've tried to support him as best as possible as his father would a lived experience. Um, and it's just tough, you know, it, it's, it's, the, it's probably, I mean, I have many parts of my life that I don't talk about often. Um, that are very difficult to deal with, mm-hmm. you know, because, mm-hmm. I mean, there's no, like, who do you talk to right. about being gone for 20 years, you know, um, right. and they haven't lived it, they haven't experienced So it. it's just a lot of things that I carry inside. Uh, that's one of them. Uh, the relationships with my two older children just didn't pan out to be what I envisioned them being. Uh, but, you know, we're in contact. We talk here and there, um... And I used to I used to feel really guilty about it until I stepped back and was like you know, he's a young adult, and I've done my part. I've did what I could. You know, yeah. I can't I can't relive the you past. Can't redo it,
3: right?
2: You know, but I did what I could to, you know, ensure that he had access to me and that you know whatever way we can kind of build those bridges. And it just hasn't turned out to be what i envisioned it to be. Can
0: I ask about the relationship with your mom? How's that? Sure.
2: How's um, that? The relationship with my mother is is interesting, um, and, and, but not in a and not in a bad way. I mean when we talk we're good. Uh she definitely was hurt by the book, you know, she was hurt, I mean sharing, you know, some of her painful moments. But once we really sat down and talked and I just explained to her like it would be an injustice for me as a mentor to not be honest about what mm-hmm. I experienced. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't help anybody, you know, and I told her I was just like, you know, I'm, you know, I know that obviously this is hurtful for you to hear about, you know, how I felt about the abuse. I'm like, but I'm really putting myself out here. I'm talking about you know, a murder I committed. And, you know, um, and so, you know, we, we navigated our way through that. Um, overall, I think we we're okay. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll never have that you know, mother-son relationship dynamic and I've made peace with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I understand. So, what is some of the the work that you're doing on um, criminal justice reform? What would you like to share? What would you like for us to know? I know there's a goal to try to reduce the population. Is it by fifty fifty percent by twenty twenty five? It's mm-hmm. kind of the goal. Yeah. <clears throat> what's what's something important there that we need to know that we or, or that even we can do that would make yeah. a difference.
2: So it's a few things. So I just want to. Um, so I was the director of strategy and innovation for an organization called Cut Fifty. Uh, I'm still a, a collaborator with that organization. I no longer hold that position. And my my role within the work that we're doing now is really that of, you know, storytelling, you know, sharing narratives of other men and women who have got out, who are living, you know, successfully and, and contributing members of society, but who are still running up against all these impediments. And so my role is to help humanize the issue. For years, all we heard is statistics and data: two point two million men and women incarcerated. Um, you know, high recidivism rate, but we really haven't saw the human side of that. And mm-hmm. so, uh, my work is really now leaning more in a creative space of storytelling and really amplifying uh, the humanity of the men and women inside. But what I what I believe that people can do immediately is, first of all, understand what the system in your community is like. Mm. Because every state has a different prison system. Uh, If there's an opportunity to go inside and volunteer, I highly encourage that. Uh, Understanding what policies and legislatures may determine who gets out and who stays in, I think that's really important for people to understand. Um, Helping to decriminalize mental illness. Like we have so many people with mental illness in solitary confinement being intentional about getting some transparency, like we, we live in a society where our prison system is very clandestine. Mm-hmm. Like people do not know what's going on, and then they wonder why when their family members come out they're broken and um, and have all these issues because we've basically fell asleep on our watch. And I also encourage people to go out and see the film Thirteenth. Mm, like amazing we're not, documentary. Like, it's on Netflix. If you don't have a Netflix account, you can sign up for the free seven-day trial and then shut and then it, off, shut it off. You need to see it, Yeah. Uh, and but, it's up for an Oscar. Yeah, Oscar nod. For an Oscar. Yeah, congratulations
0: to Ava DuVernay on that. Yeah. Amazing.
2: Check that. Check that documentary out and start discussions.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, uh, one of the things that I think that Ava did brilliantly with the film is she didn't offer any solutions at the end. Right. She left it up for us to decide. And right. So I think it's enough work to go around for all of us. Uh, but really paying attention and being intentional about learning how the system, why the system exists. And 13th is a great place to start, because once you point. make that connection to slavery and, and the 13th Amendment um, and you see what's happening with this free labor in here and you see why people, big businesses are investing in it, mm-hmm. then you'll understand why so many men and it, it are is inside. a good,
0: great place to start. It's a good point, because yeah. it really, um, you need the foundation. Yeah. You can't really do anything or really understand um if you can have impact or where you can really get engaged without understanding what's happening. Mm-hmm. And she did a brilliant job of laying that foundation. Yeah,
2: definitely. Yeah. So I would say read, read, write my wrongs,
0: read, write my wrongs. Absolutely. <laughs>
2: then watch the 13. Yes. Start study groups, mm-hmm. incorporate us into it. I'm easy access through social media.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but let's talk about what works. You know, I, I, for a long time, I've been identified as uh criminal reform, you know criminal justice reform activists and i I no longer want people to identify me as such uh because i don't believe that you can reform this system okay I think we have to abolish it
3: mm-hmm.
2: um i've been convinced, and you know actually it's interesting because I, I instinctively knew it. I just thought it would be a real hard sale to really sell people an idea of abolishing the system as it exists mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but in recent times you know the 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 more I understand there's a responsibility with being in the public eye mm-hmm. and that responsibility is to tell the truth mm-hmm. about what really works and what doesn't. Um and reform doesn't work. Basically it just reshuffles the deck and deals somebody gonna get a bad hand, you know, even though somebody may get a good hand, a few people gonna get bad hands. And so the thing is like we have to abolish the system as it exists, like the structural components of it. Um and and it's a hard thing to do, you know, and reform is part of that. Uh, but it's so limiting, you know, and, and I think that in order to abolish it, we have to be honest about what it is and why it is. We have to be honest that this is a big business industry where people can work for these companies while they're in prison and then can't get hired once you walk out. You know? Billions of dollars. So people can billions. hire you while you're in prison for a dollar a day. And then you can't even fill out an application at those same companies when you get out mm. and get paid a working wage, you know. Um, so the hypocrisy within the system, like we have to abolish that. We have to abolish the profit motive. Uh, prison is a very profitable place. This is why it's the only place that has a seventy percent failure rate but still ends up being profitable. Wow.
0: You know? Thank you. I I I'm sitting here Thinking about what you just said, and my mind is just like racing. You said the same companies that they work for in prison, they can't go and fill out an application and work for those companies outside of the prison system. Yeah, that's yeah,
2: yeah. I yeah. mean, it's deep. Wow. Like we have a, a basically a hundred percent employment rate in prison, but you know, wow. our, our employment rate out here is probably what ten percent, eleven percent if you're lucky.
0: That that, yeah. that just, just hearing that just blew me away. Mm-hmm. I hate to say this, but we are so out of time. <laughs> I'm just sitting here going, oh, my God, where did it go? This mm-hmm. is such, um, I so appreciate this discussion.
2: I appreciate you having um, it. and...
0: Because it's a great book. You You've got to get it. Writing My Wrongs, bestseller list, yeah, New, York bestseller. Uh, New York Times bestseller, and paperback just came out
2: last Tuesday. Last so Tuesday, excited about that. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Um, and so, if people want to reach you, what's your Twitter handle?
2: Uh, Shaka Senghor. You can find me on all social media. Shaka Singor. Awesome. Awesome. Awesome.
0: Well, um, I'm going to wrap up here because if not, I'll keep going, and I think <laughs> I'll get in trouble with those engineers out there. <laughs> but this was amazing. There's so much in this book that we didn't even get to touch on yeah, um, and so much that you have done. Again, I I just can't tell you how much I think your journey is courageous.
1: Oh, thanks so much. To be
0: out here talking about this and willing to step out and let us see such an intimate part of your life and what you're, you're having to, to um, endure on a day-to-day basis to champion and tell this story over and over. So thank you for that. Mm. Thank you for being a part of book circle online. Um, catch us next time for a great book. We appreciate it. Love your support. You can catch um, you can catch this um, on book at any point in time. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you again. From managing editor Jason Squamata, executive producers Maria Menounos, Phil Svitek, and Kevin Undergaro, we would like to thank you for tuning in to Book Circle Online. For more
1: discussion, go to bookcircleonline.com. And if you have comments, questions, or book title suggestions, write us at info at bookcircleonline.com. I'm Sir
0: Richard Wentworth, and this is Book Circle Online. BCO. Join the circle.